District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Hi, everyone. Happy Monday, and welcome to another installment of District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. There's a lot of energy news to cover on today's episode before I bring you guys some more interviews, but these are really, really important matters that have gotten kind of under the radar in the news cycle. So I figured I would talk about two important updates, one relating to Virginia governor-elect Glenn Youngkin pledging to take the state out of the regional greenhouse gas initiative, and also the move by the Biden administration to repeal the 2020 navigable water protection rule, which would completely undo the progress to restore trust between those who are affected by the Clean Water Act, private property landowners, and what that means with this rewriting. Are we going to see 2015 era levels again? Are we going to see certain abuses with the law, with the rule? I will assess both of those items in today's episode. Here's what I have for you. I feel a lot more comfortable having cast my vote for the governor-elect and his ticket because of all the stuff he is promising from a fiscal standpoint, but I'm really amazed at how quickly he has said he wants to undo several really extreme environmental items, namely the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which he's looking to repeal once he gets into office. And then I was really kind of surprised that he announced at the Hampton Roads Chamber of Commerce that he would pull Virginia out of the regional greenhouse gas initiative. It's an 11-member cooperative of states of the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, and they build themselves as this carbon market, but it's really not a marketplace for carbon, and it really hasn't done much to lower emissions nor to propel different states to adopt wind and solar or clean energy options onto the grid. And I'm going to explain why that is. But first, let's talk about Glenn Youngkin's statement relating to this. So from the Virginia Mercury, this is where I first caught whiff of this, Youngkin had said and expressed his desire to take the state out of this cooperative, or Reggie as it's called. Reggie builds itself, Reggie describes itself as a regional market for carbon, but it is really a carbon tax that is fully passed on to ratepayers. It's a bad deal for Virginians. It's a bad deal for Virginia businesses. And I promised to lower the cost of living in Virginia, and this is just the beginning. And I want to point first to several things explaining why being a part of this cooperative really doesn't do anything to lower emissions. And I'm not saying this because I'm a conservative and I'm trying to be opposed to this, but I'd heard many controversial things about this. I thought it was too good to be true that different state governments were trying to create a carbon market and anytime this government, whether it's the federal, even state sometimes, they don't really advance market innovations. They don't really advance market solutions. So I was curious, I did research, and from the Nonpartisan Congressional Research Service, they had found at the time when they did this, uh, I think it was 2019 before a few more states, before Virginia and Pennsylvania jumped on board, they found that the nine partner states, ultimately, when it comes to reducing carbon emissions, that the impact was negligible at best, that the nine partner states accounted for approximately 7% of U.S. carbon emissions and 16% of U.S. gross domestic product, and they had called the carbon emissions reductions arguably negligible. And when you break down those figures, it essentially means that those nine states 
had only reduced about 1.4% of total U.S. emissions. That's pretty disconcerting, given the fact that so much fanfare was given to this, all that jazz. I also want to bring your attention to this Cato Institute. And yes, it's a libertarian outfit, but I thought they really broke down a comparison between states that are part of Reggie and states that are not part of Reggie really well. But before I do, how does this affect Virginians? According to the State Corporation Commission, the SCC, they found in their most recent filings that participation in Reggie is estimated to raise energy costs to $4.37 a month or $52.44 per year if this were to be fully adopted by September 1st of next year. And that might not seem like a lot of money to people, but in, in a time of inflation, in a time of rising energy costs, that's a lot of money for regular people, even here in Virginia, outside of Northern Virginia. And when you pair that with the new and very costly Virginia Clean Economy Act, the net zero law, slated to raise energy bills by a whopping $800 a year by 2030, again, with inflation, with rising costs of everything, and energy and uh, electricity and gas have increased the most in the last year. I think for gas, we're seeing a 58% increase for electricity, at least in the double digits. I'll get those figures for you guys. But those two items, those goods and, and services are a lot more expensive for regular people, including Virginians. So when you see it from a cost factor, it is very expensive. It makes no sense. And we see studies routinely that show that the more people have to pay for energy costs, the less they're concerned about combating climate change. And this is from an AP uh, University of Chicago study. And the more you increased it by $10 increments, the more people were less inclined to support such an agenda. So when things personally hit people's pocketbooks, they're less inclined to support these radical proposals. Now back to the Cato Institute review of Reggie that I was just alluding to, but I had to factor in how this will actually be detrimental to Virginia ratepayers and taxpayers. I gave you an example. I'll include all those links in the show notes. But it said that when you compared states that were part of Reggie versus not Reggie with respect to electricity demand, they said that the Reggie program uh, was very difficult to assess in terms of comparing electric prices from state to state because of different significant regional differences in power cost. They said that a number of states were also deregulating the supply portion of electric bills, allowing for market competition prior to the start of the Reggie program. And they said that non-Reggie comparison states actually added more wind and solar generation than Reggie states, adding 5.5 percentage points to generation compared to 2.3 percentage points in Reggie states, even removing the large wind farm construction effort in Texas from the calculation, non-Reggie comparison states still outperform Reggie states, adding 3.4 percentage points compared to 2.3. The cost of wind and solar power has averaged two to three times the megawatt hour rate compared to existing conventional fuel sources. The price impact should be greater in non-Reggie states. Despite this disadvantage, non-Reggie states still had a lower overall price increase. And if you want to know where I got those figures, that's from this Cato Institute Winter Journal. Now, with Governor-elect Youngkin's claim that this is a carbon tax that'll trickle down to ratepayers, he is not wrong. Essentially, what this does, instead of creating a market for carbon pricing, it essentially imposes a carbon tax, 
not only onto producers, but also onto consumers. So if you're not an economics buff, and I'm not an economist by any means, but what I understand, anytime taxes are levied onto producers, for the most part, consumers are going to feel those taxes too. It's common sense. In terms of what a carbon tax will do and how people's costs will go up. So I want to read for you from the Congressional Budget Office from their May 22nd, 2013 report on the effects of a carbon tax on the economy and environment, since we're talking about what Reggie's effects would be and if Glenn Youngkin's claim is accurate. So if we're talking about a carbon tax being imposed on producers and therefore being felt by consumers, the CBO backs that information as well. So what would the carbon taxes effect be on the economy? And this is from the CBO 2013. By raising the cost of fossil fuels, using fossil fuels, a carbon tax would tend to increase the cost of producing goods and services, especially such as electricity and transportation that involve relatively large amounts of CO2 emissions. They claim that it's going to be an incentive for companies to manufacture their products in ways that resulted in fewer CO2 emissions, Higher production costs would also lead to higher prices for emission-intensive goods and services, which would encourage households to use less of them and more of other goods and services. I don't know if that's true. But here is where they conclude that this will have an overall, this carbon tax would have an overall negative effect on the economy, especially here in Virginia. The higher prices it caused implementing a carbon tax would diminish the purchasing power of people's earnings, effectively reducing their real inflation-adjusted wages lower real wages would have a net effect of reducing the amount of that people worked, thus decreasing the overall supply of labor. Investment would also decline, further reducing the economy's total output. The cost of a carbon tax would not be evenly distributed among U.S. households. For example, the additional cost from higher prices would consume a greater share of income for low-income households than for higher-income households because low-income households generally spend a larger percentage of their income on emission-intensive goods. Similarly, workers and investors in emission-intensive industries who would see the largest decrease in demand for their products would likely to bear would be likely to bear relatively large burdens as the economy adjusted to the tax. Finally, areas of the country where electricity is produced from coal, we still have a pretty big coal industry here. It's diminished in years here in Virginia. It used to be 10% of electricity output. Now it's 4% according to the EIA. Most emission-intensive fuel per unit of energy generated would tend to experience the largest increases in electricity prices than other areas, areas would. If you've been to southwestern Virginia and you know that that region is more economically depressed, could you imagine coal country of Virginia having to pay the most in energy electricity increases? That's what this is explaining. So you have lower overall wages, you have electricity costs going up for those, especially in lower incomes, especially in regions outside of Northern Virginia. And this ultimately, this imposition of a carbon tax, to simply put, it would essentially drive up businesses that produce carbon intensive goods and services to other states that are not as draconian. We could see businesses go to Texas, the Carolinas, and other states that don't participate in the Reggie program. Or ultimately, if this were to still be in effect, it could essentially ship jobs and companies overseas. And we've already seen a lot of problems with that. And so I can see Governor-elect Youngkin's reasoning for wanting to pull Virginia out of this really mere virtue signaling outfit, this cooperative that really isn't a marketplace for carbon and really would just impose carbon taxes. 
Now on to the proposed WOTUS rule, the update from the Biden administration that was just handed down and the implications stemming from redefining what a navigable water is. I was not surprised to see the Biden Environmental Protection Agency announce their intention to revoke the 2020 or Trump era navigable waters protection rule, the NWPR, to return the definition of navigable waters to a murky significant nexus parameter. That may seem above the pale for all of you listening, but I'm going to explain for you, citing my recent IWF post about this because I think I was able to contextualize this in simple terms and kind of point to a case, a very extreme case of what happens when the government weaponizes different rules and rules changes to hurt people and to also be at the detriment of the environment. So 2015, the Obama administration enacted the Waters of the United States rule. And it was very broad in scope. It wasn't really specific. And it could be weaponized by the agency to apply navigable water designations to lots of body of water. So ponds, uh, streams, and they would even do this on private property. And so the Biden administration wants to restore and recodify WOTUS to the Obama era rules, which has broadly defined the waters having significant nexus to jurisdictional waters. Now, what the hell am I talking about? Or what the heck am I talking about? And what, why, does it, why should it concern you? The Environmental Law and Policy, which is a really interesting source, noted how lopsided and complex the Obama era rule was, writing... Determining if waters had a significant nexus to jurisdictional waters under the 2015 rule often required case-specific analysis or the hiring of a consultant to assist with the jurisdictional determination and sometimes led to inconsistent application of the rule in different regions. Now, what did the Trump administration, Trump EPA, do to narrow the definition? So they narrowed it down and clarified the definition of jurisdictional waters. They didn't eliminate the WOTUS rules, mind you. So they created four distinct categories, including territorial seas and traditional navigable waters, perennial and intermittent tributaries that contribute surface water flow to such water, certain lakes, ponds, and impoundments of jurisdictional waters, and wetlands adjacent to other jurisdictional waters. Now, if we are to see a return, right now it's up for comment, public comment for the next 60 some odd days to see what the public wants. I have no doubt, given the actions we've seen of this administration, they will go back to 2015 Wotus era rules. That's an only given from what we can surmise from the different trends and behaviors that the different agencies are tackling. Now, if we have a broad definition of navigable waters, I think we're unfortunately going to see more cases. I don't know if you guys remember this story, but I'm gonna refresh your memory or I'm gonna introduce you to this case study that, a, that involved a Navy veteran who was sent to jail for digging ponds on his property under 2015 WOTUS rule parameter. The Wall Street Journal had talked about this case, and they said that Joe Robertson, a Navy veteran who, according to the Wall Street Journal, here's his story, Robertson, a Navy veteran who died in March 2019 at age 80, spent 18 months in prison for getting the definition of navigable waters wrong. The land he owned in the Montana mountains was more than 40 miles from the nearest genuinely navigable water, but a trickle ran through it, the combined force of two garden hoses meandering down the slope in a channel about a foot deep and a foot wide. 
Before he died, Robertson and his wife, Carrie, dug ponds in the path of their modest mountain trickle. The Environmental Protection Agency declared it a navigable water subject to the Clean Water Act and prosecuted him for, quote, discharging, end quote, pollutants without a permit. He was found guilty in 2016. In addition to his 18 months in prison, he was ordered to pay a fine of $130,000. Per the EPA website, if you guys don't know, the Clean Water Act of 1972 establishes the scope of federal jurisdiction under the act. However, the law doesn't define what is or isn't considered navigable waters. Instead, the EPA and U.S. Army Corps of Engineers are tasked with defining WOTUS regulations. Now, if you want to learn more about this, read through my blog post at IWF. I hyperlink to all the corresponding links that relate to WOTUS, navigable waters, the Trump era rule, what the proposal for this iteration coming from the Biden administration looks like. And if you have thoughts about it, you can submit your comments to the government about whether or not you want to see a reversion back to the WOTUS rules. And I hope if you have concerns about this, you do make those known. And it, it is a complex topic, mind you. And I know some of my friends in the sporting and conservation world will disagree with me, especially those who do wetlands conservation. I think we could see more cases like Joe Robertson's and that really would just undo a lot of the progress made when the 2020 Navigable Waters Protection Rule was put into place. Like I said, it just defined more succinctly what a navigable water does. It didn't encroach on wetlands and we didn't even see the full impact of the law because they revoked it within a year of it being implemented. So it really is hard to see what effect it would have had. But it was under a lot of consultation. A lot of stakeholders had expressed their concerns with the 2015 WOTUS rules. And I have no doubt we're going to see a lot of conflict brewing, a lot of legislative debates over this. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, comb through some episodes, and leave us reviews, we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds, all of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. I get a lot of requests and my schedule is also quite busy. So you'll see guests come from me. And I'm, but like I said, I'm always open to different guests coming on the show. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.